0: Yes, we're going to be reading um, from Hebrews and then we're going to dive straight into our study. So if you have your Bibles, we are going to be looking at Hebrews um, chapter 4 verse 14 through chapter 5 verse 10. Through chapter 5 verse 10 and as we always do in our efforts to honor God's word, may you please stand for the reading of it. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron Aaron, Aaron was. So also Christ did not exhort himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, After the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What did all of that mean? Who has an idea? Who wants the mic? I have the mic. I'll try my best, but we need to pray. (laughs) Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the opportunity. The opportunities you've given us to really stop and pause and sit and reflect and meditate on your word. This morning is one of those opportunities. And so God, when we do endeavor to understand and apply your word, what is comforting to know is that you don't leave us to ourselves to figure it out. You have provided us with your spirit um, to enable us and enlighten us and give us understanding. And so we look to you to help us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 And so yesterday, um, we got invited to this dog competition. Um, Now we have a dog. We're involved in all sorts of things. Uh, We got invited to this dog competition and basically, you know, you dress up your dog and, you know, you go to a place where all other dogs are dressed up um, and then, you know, all of that stuff, um, but unfortunately, how we imagined the event to be wasn't what we expected. And so, when we got there, it was basically you sit in a restaurant with dogs around, all dressed up, and owners dressed up. Like we weren't, we just didn't go that far. And so, we only stayed a little bit and decided to leave. As we were on our way back home, we decided to make the most of our time, you know, because we were going to spend about an hour or two at the dog thing. And since we don't anymore, we wanted to make the most of our time and so we were like what do we do now what do we do we looked at some options and as we were driving home um, down some of the streets we saw that there was a block party going on it's a block party down the street and we thought do you know what let's park and let's go to the block party uninvited okay <laughs> it's on the street and we can walk the streets. This is a public street. And so we got out car. We went <laughs> and participated in this block party. It, it, you know, we found out that it was an annual kind of street block party for that neighborhood. And it was for Halloween. And so you had people dressed up in all sorts of weird and funky stuff. Um, and you had kids playing games. There, were, there was food. There was everything. And we walked in. And luckily... We thought we didn't know anyone, but luckily we met someone we knew. (laughs) And that helped us kind of connect with the vibe that was going on there. And so when we met her, she explained what was going on and everything. And then we were like, man, like we weren't invited to this, but we can just pretend that we were. Okay. And so we got some food and we were eating And um, what had happened was, I think I got my meal last. And so my family finished eating. They went about kind of hanging around and speaking to people. And I was on my own. I found myself on my own. There were these tall tables. And I was eating on my own in the middle of this cold gathering, block party. And it dawned on me... (laughs) Um, that, wait a minute, like, I'm not invited to this, I don't really know anyone, and I feel really awkward now. I started to think to myself, most people that are looking at me are thinking, who is this random black guy, right, in this, the midget here, what is he doing here? And so what I did was I called Eleanor and the kids over, and I said, please come and be with me, so I don't look like the random black guy who just showed up at this block party. And the reason I did that was this, was that I was trying to make sure people got an accurate understanding of who I was. I just didn't want to be that random guy just at this event on my own. I wanted people to know that I had a family And I had kids, and I kind of fit in. That has been a challenge for me growing up in London and here. um, I've always struggled with fitting in in certain contexts where I'm a minority. And so I struggle with that, and I always aim to try and fit in. I always aim for people to have an accurate understanding of who I am. And I would say the author of Hebrews um, wants to do something similar there are many views of who Jesus is. And we don't need to go through them, right? Many views of who Jesus is. And as Christians, our view of Jesus can be inaccurate. And so from the start of this book... Um, uh, the author of Hebrews has been doing his best to give us a more accurate understanding of who Jesus truly is. He wants to sharpen our view of Jesus, and in this section of Hebrews, he's going to do this by helping us understand that Jesus is a high priest, Jesus is a high priest. And so in this section of Hebrews, what the author wants to do is that he's not only going to elaborate on the idea that Jesus is a high priest, but he'll show us why Jesus is a great high priest, making him superior to any other high priest in history. And this understanding of Jesus as our great and superior high priest will help us in these ways. It will help us hold firmly So the faith draw us near, draw help us draw near to God, and help us live a life of obedience. Live a life of obedience. And so, who's ready to dive in? this text. Let's get it. Okay, first, a correct understanding of Jesus as our great and superior high priest will help us, number one, hold firmly to the faith. Look at verse 14. It says, "...since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession." First things first, let's talk about what a high priest is, okay? If you're here and you're not familiar um, with the Bible or the Old Testament, you're probably thinking to yourself, what is a high priest? If you are here and you are familiar with the Old Testament, you have an idea of what a high priest is, but you're not quite sure, okay? You have an idea that this high priest is this old man with a white beard who wears a long robe, carries a staff, looks a bit like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, that kind of picture, okay? But what is a high priest actually? Um, If you was to ask a Jew in those times what a high priest was, they would be very familiar with one. Um, To the Jews, the high priest was the highest religious authority. He was like the Pope in the Catholic Church. He played a vital role within the Jewish community. He was the most important religious Figure when it came to maintaining their relationship with God, and his role had two main focuses. Two main focuses of the high priest were to represent God. To the people by teaching them the law. And number two, to represent the people before God by making sacrifices for their sins. Okay? And so what were the two main focuses of a high priest? Let me hear it. I'm kidding. Let me move on. Um, This was what the high priest was all about. But here we're reminded that Jesus is greater and superior high priest because verse 14 says to us, He has passed through the heavens. He has passed through the heavens. What does this mean? To understand what this means, we have to go back to the Old Testament again and figure out what the Day of Atonement is. Okay? The Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur, is a Jewish holiday devoted to atoning. Um, to atoning for sins. It's considered the holiest day of the year in Judaism. In Old Testament times, the main event of the day of atonement was when the high priest would enter a place called the Holy of Holies. The most holy place, which is the Holy of Holies, was a little room in the middle of the temple, and this room was where God's presence appeared, okay? room where God's presence appeared. And so during the day of atonement, only the high priest was allowed to enter this most holy place. And he did this for one purpose. And that was to make sacrifices for his sins and the sins of the people. And so when the author of Hebrews says that Jesus, the son of God, okay, has Passed through the heavens, what he means is that Jesus has done something similar to the high priest, but he's done it in a different way. Like the high priest, Jesus has entered into God's presence. But unlike the high priest, after his sacrifice for our sins on the cross, Jesus has entered into God's presence not by entering into a man-made room in a temple, but he has entered into God's actual presence by dying, resurrecting, and ascending into heaven. The earthly high priest was only allowed to enter the holy place once a year, but Jesus, our heavenly high priest, has always been and will always be in the presence of God as our mediator interceding for us. Okay? Michael Kruger, who's an author and theologian, says this, if you are a follower of Jesus, he will never ever stop loving you, pleading your case, and representing you before God. That means that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son surrounding us. That is what it means to be represented by Jesus, and that never stops. We can have eternal security in heaven because we have someone who is able to intercede for us forever. This is one of the things that makes Jesus the great high priest. And so the question is, how should we respond to this? Look at verse 14 again. It says, remember, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. What are we meant to do? Let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession is another way of saying we should hold fast firmly to our faith. No other high priest was called great. No other high priest passed through the heavens. No other high priest is the Son of God. Jesus is the only one who's the great high priest. Jesus is the only one who's the Son of God. And Jesus is the only one who has passed through the heavens. In a room of this size, with as many people as we have, it's possible that some of you in recent times have been tempted to loosen your grip on Jesus. I don't know what's caused it. I have had times in my life where I've been tempted to just lose my grip, to just say, you know what? Following Jesus is too hard. It's too challenging. And um, it's just not worth it. And I am going to abandon Jesus. I have been tempted in that way. And I am sure some of you have, and some of you are currently being tempted to loosen your grip on your faith. And so this morning, I want to encourage you and I want to um, inspire you that um, no matter who you are, no matter what you're going through, do not abandon what you believe about Jesus. Instead, remain committed to him who's your great high priest who has passed through the heavens and now ministers there for your sake. Next, the correct understanding of Jesus as our great and superior high priest will not only help us hold firmly to the faith, number two, but it will also help us draw near to God also help us draw near to God. Look at verse 15, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. I've got a question for you. How did that strike you? That's a mind blowing statement right there. This is why. Verse 14, as we had a look, presented us with this godlike portrait of Jesus. And that portrait was a reminder that Jesus, the human being who walked the roads of ancient Israel, who gathered disciples and was executed by the Romans only to resurrect, this Jesus was actually God in human flesh. He was both fully man and fully God. He is the great high priest, the son of God who has entered into God's presence where he is now enthroned at the right hand of God, reigning and representing us before God. That's the reality of who Jesus is and where he's at. And now what's happening in verse 15 we're exposed to this unforeseen side of Jesus, our great high priest, namely his humanity. That's why it says he's a high priest who is what? He who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. The Greek word for sympathize here means to share the experience of another. And so what this is saying is that Jesus, the God-man, fully shared our human experience. This means he does not imagine how you feel, but he has actually felt what you feel. And as our great high priest, Jesus understands what we're going through because look at verse 15 again. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus fully understands us and can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted as we are. Gosh, what is. There's so much in here. First of all, this doesn't mean Jesus was tempted in the exact ways we are. Okay, um, author Arkent Hughes once helps us here. He says, "Jesus did not experience the specific temptations peculiar to women or married people or the elderly. Neither did he experience the temptations that comes from having already sinned. But he did experience the essential temptations that cover and, in his case, supersede whatever we may experience." As God who was clothed in humanity, Jesus was tempted in the same way you have been. He was tempted by wealth, by power, and by um, comfort. And in this context, listen to me, in this context, right, where we're going to look at, Jesus' temptation um, had to do with him submitting and relinquishing his will to God's will. Okay, we're going to get to that. And so Jesus is our high priest, can relate to our temptations with faith, but he's also very different to us. Why is that? Because he faced the temptations and troubles of this world and did so without what? I can't hear you. Thank you. Without sin. Jesus has been tempted as we are tempted. He has been weak just like us. He has suffered just like we suffer and he has emerged victorious. I love Charles Swindle, what he says here. He says the same circumstances, situations, and allurements that bombard us day by day also assaulted him. The Son of Man didn't float through life in a state of numbness with a blindfold and earplugs. He saw, heard, and felt all of these trials and temptations throughout his life. But unlike us, he didn't sin, not in thought, not in word, and not in deed there's so much in here, but we have to move on, all right? <laughs> Community groups, going to be awesome this week, and there's more to come, all right? Jesus felt a full force of temptation, and temptations he faced were real inviting him to sin. However, as God, he did not did not sin, and this position allows us to affirm Jesus as the superior high priest who is fully God and fully man, and because of this, Because of this, we can draw near to God. Listen, because Jesus is our great and superior high priest who has been tempted as we are, but has not sinned, look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think this verse is one of the most comforting, but at the same time, challenging in the Bible, okay? It's comforting because it's a reminder of the great privilege we have as Christians. It's saying that we should have confidence and boldness to approach, to draw near to the throne of grace. And when we do, there's a promise. It says we'll find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's why it's comforting. But I would say it's challenging because for various reasons, we at times don't want to do what we get to do when it comes to approaching and drawing near to God's throne. This is why, let me break it down. Kings and queens of the ancient world would sit on their thrones, okay, as symbols of their power and authority, okay? When um, the King Charles sits on his throne, it's just fun, okay? He's just sitting on there. It's just, oh, he looks awesome, you know? But back then, whenever a king sat, that was the whole point. It was a symbol of power and authority. The king or queen was saying, look at me. I have power and authority. And so, in Christian belief, okay, God's throne is a symbol of power and authority. However, This verse is a much-needed reminder that God's throne is not just a throne of power and authority, but it's also a throne of what? Grace. (laughs) And so if you're a Christian and Jesus is your high priest, you can, with confidence and boldness, approach God's gracious throne. And when you do you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so the question we need to explore next related to this, and what does it mean for us to actually draw near to God's throne? What does it mean? Um, Douglas Moo, who's a theologian, says, in Christianity, the concept of drawing near to God with confidence refers especially to approaching God in prayer. And so the idea of drawing towards God's throne of grace especially means to approach God in prayer. And so I've got a question for you. How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? When you pray, do you pray with confidence or doubt? Do you pray Flippantly giving little thought to what you say or do you pray with reverence? Is God the first or the last person you turn to in your time of needs? What's keeping you from confidently approaching God's throne? Is it pride that you have the resources to figure out whatever you need to figure out? Or is it shame that tells you you're not good enough? What keeps you from approaching God's throne of grace? So our dog, Messi, and this is fascinating about dogs, whenever we sit to eat, and by the way, my wife told me the other day, I use too many dog illustrations now. If you guys agree with that, please just send me an email and I'll stop. But I know there's a lot of dog lovers in here and it kind of relates. (laughs) So our dog Messi, whenever we sit at the table to eat, what does he do? He's right there. And he sits and he looks up, hoping that something will drop. He's figured out that one of our children like always drops food. And so he always goes by her. So he's figured it out. And he's sitting, not with confidence that he will get something, but he's sitting just hoping, hoping that something will drop. When I think about us approaching the throne of grace, sometimes we have that perspective we approach god as if you know like we're not sure whether he'll respond and we approach him like messy and just hope that god will answer our prayers or even listen to us but this verse reminds us to confidently approach God's throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's a promise. That in prayer, God will respond and he will give us grace and mercy and whatever we need in this life. The clearer your picture of Jesus as high priest, the greater the confidence you will have. His life, death, resurrection, and ascension has opened the way completely for our access to God. And so the confidence you have in approaching God in prayer is not based on your good behavior, but in Jesus, your perfect high priest. So we've seen so far that correct understanding of Jesus as our high priest will help us hold firmly to the faith, will draw us near to God. Lastly, um, a correct understanding of Jesus as our great and superior high priest will help us live a life of obedience, will help us live a life of obedience. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for our sins. This gives us um, more of an understanding of, of what a high priest is. It reminds us that a high priest is chosen from among men Um, Reminds us of the responsibilities of a high priest. They were chosen to act on behalf of men in relation to God by offering gifts and sacrifices for sin. Verse 2 informs us that high priests dealt gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Look at verse 3. It says, Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. The high priests understood that they were human, just like everybody else. And as a result, they would offer not just sacrifices for the people, but for themselves as well. In 2009, uh, my wife and I, we'd been married for about a year um, then, and I woke up one morning Um, with a sustained, just a burning desire to pursue vocational um, ministry. Okay, We were in London. I was involved in a local church. And the more I did ministry, the more just I was like, I want to do this for a living. I want to do this for a career. And so what we did was we wanted to figure out how this could become It's crazy, by the way, that I'm telling you this now and I'm here now like looking at you guys and like 12 years ago, okay, I was, I just had a burning desire to do this. So anyway, my brain's going wild now. And so back then I was like, okay, I want to be a pastor and lead a church. Um, What do I need to do? And so seminary, um, looked at seminary, I applied for seminary and that's what brought us to America for me to do my Masters of Divinity in Los Angeles and eventually plant a church. Now imagine if I were an Israelite living in the times of the Old Testament and one day I woke up and I had a burning desire to be a high priest. The question I would ask is how could I make this possible? What steps could I take to become a high priest? What could I do to become a high priest? And the answer would be nothing. This is why. Look at verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. In other words, I couldn't become a high priest just because I wanted to. Like Aaron, who's the first of a high priest, I must be called by God himself to do his work. A person becomes a high priest only when called by God. And the same is true for Jesus. God was the one who appointed him to the position of high priest. You don't believe me? You think Jesus is awesome? Yes, he is. But God appointed him. Look at verse 5. It says, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said to him you are my son today i have begotten you jesus is like all other high priests because god was the one who appointed him as high priest but jesus is not like other high priests because he is a son of god who was appointed by god to a new and unique priesthood. And there's more, okay? Um, God the Father didn't just acknowledge Jesus as his son, but he also identifies him as a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, that's in verse 6. Some of you are like, who is Melchizedek? He's a mysterious character in the Bible and I would go into who he is and how he relates to Jesus. But we're going to be doing that later in chapter 7 of Hebrews. But now... What I can tell you about him is that he was both a king and priest. And so the question is, why is Jesus associated with Melchizedek? What does it mean for Jesus to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? Melchizedek is in the Bible because he serves as a symbol of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He does. Okay, And we're going to get into that later on in chapter 5. But for now, we need to move on. The author of Hebrews, what he does next is he moves from the theology of Jesus, priesthood, to the life of Jesus. And by doing this, what he wants to do is help us see that Jesus, as a great and superior high priest, wasn't just based on his relationship with God, but the path to his appointment was one of suffering obedience and endurance. Okay, Um, look at verse 7, look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. The reference to Jesus offering up prayers and supplications points back to Jesus' agonizing surrender to God the Father's will in the garden of Gethsemane. Look at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus chose to obey, even though he was God's son, and obedience led to suffering and death. Through the Gethsemane experience and what followed, he demonstrated the greatest and most costly obedience. Jesus suffered humiliation, Separation from his father and death in order to do God's will. Look at verse 9. And being made perfect, that is Jesus, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. Stop right there. There's a lot in that verse. But what I want to draw your attention to is the fact that it says Jesus was made perfect. What does it mean that Jesus was made perfect? What we know about Jesus, right, was that he was perfect when he was born in the manger. He didn't live a sinless life, okay? He did, sorry, um, sorry, he did live a sinless life. I caught myself there. Sometimes I say stuff and I don't and I keep going and you guys just politely grin at me. But thanks for uh, your response, okay? Uh, Jesus was perfect um, in so many ways. But the perfection this is talking about is not moral perfection. Um, That is one kind of perfection. This refers to another kind. The word perfect in this verse does not refer to his moral perfection. What it does mean is this, that by his life, death, and exaltation, Jesus became fully qualified as our Savior. Jesus wasn't made perfect because he was imperfect and needed to be made perfect. Rather, he was made perfect in the sense that he had to learn obedience through suffering in order to become qualified and sufficient high priest. You guys keeping up? Sort of. Just pick up what you need to, okay? And in being made perfect through his finished work on the cross, verse 9 informs us that Jesus became the source of of salvation to all who obey him. This simply means that Jesus' suffering stands as the basis for our salvation. Put simply, Jesus' obedience to God the Father, which involves suffering, is the reason why we can be saved. Obedience is a word that comes with a lot of baggage. Obedience is related to submission. Oh gosh, the submission word. Obedience is related to relinquishing your will. Obedience is related to surrender. And when we hear those words, we are challenged by them. When we think about obedience in this context, what we have to realize is this, that obedience was not only necessary for Jesus, but it is also expected of us, his followers. Listen to what Raymond Brown says. He's a pastor in London. He says, it is important for us to see that when Jesus surrendered himself entirely to God's will, he obeyed not only in order to honor God, but also to help us see what obedience is all about. In the same way Jesus learned obedience in suffering, he calls us to respond in obedience to his will. Agony, turmoil, struggle, these are the emotions I have felt in my 39 years of existence. These emotions were dominant in my life when I got the call in 2016 that my grandma had passed away. The emotions of agony and turmoil and struggle was also evident in me and definitely my wife when we got the call in 2018 that her mom had passed away. We also felt these emotions when we found out at the beginning of 2020, our application for our green card had been denied and we needed to leave the country ASAP. I was in agony. I remember vividly many, many days and many nights in my room on my own, pleading with God and agonizing and saying, God, I pray and I hope that it's your will (laughs) that we stay. These are emotions you have all felt as well. And these are emotions Jesus, our great high priest, felt in the Garden of Gethsemane as he contemplated the gruesome fate of a Roman cross. And we cannot fully empathize with Jesus because he alone, okay, was appointed by God for the responsibility of dying for the sins of the world. We cannot fully relate to him. But we can empathize with him in some way. And this is how we all know how hard it can be to fully surrender to God's will for our lives. We all know how hard it can be to fully surrender to God's will for our lives. Just like Jesus, who surrendered to the will of the Father in the face of extreme suffering, we as his followers are called to completely surrender to the will of God, no matter what it may be. And this call does not change when we come to face-to-face with our greatest fears. Put simply this, we should do what Jesus did by completely surrendering our wills to the will of God the Father even in the face of our greatest fear. And this is so challenging. Why is that? George Guthrie has this insight. It's brilliant. He says, We want to walk with God in the Garden of Eden. God bless my life. Let me know you more. Never having entered the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet the two gardens are a package tour with a specific itinerary. In reality, the tour lasts a lifetime as we move from the one to the other. This is the reality of life. There will come a time in your life as a Christian when God will want something for you that you will not want for yourself. His will for you will be in conflict with what you want for yourself. And in those moments, may we be empowered to say yes to God's will. May we, like Jesus, we will wrestle. But may we come to the point where we say, God, not what I will, but what you will. Richard Foster, who um, has wrote some great books on prayer, has this prayer I want... To conclude with this is the prayer and so just focus if you can't read just listen oh lord how do i let go when i'm unsure of things i'm in, when i'm unsure of your will that really isn't a problem at all is it the truth of the matter is i hate the very idea of letting go i really want to be in control No, I need to be in control. I'm afraid to give up control, afraid of what might happen. Heal my fear, Lord. How good of you to reveal my blind spots, even in the midst of my stumbling attempts to pray. Thank you. But now, what do I do? How do I give up control? Jesus, please teach me your way of relinquishing. Through his finished work on the cross, Jesus became our great high priest who provided the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And because of this, we can hold to our faith, draw near to God, and live a life of obedience. Let's pray. And so God, thank you for helping us understand who your son is even more this morning. God, may you begin to just sharpen our view and any unnecessary and inaccurate understanding of Jesus that we may have. God, I hope that this morning, who Jesus really is, has Um, has cleansed us of that and so God as we've been reminded as a high priest um, Jesus ultimately sacrificed his life for us so that we may not only draw near to you but God we may be able to in times that are challenging hold on to our faith and so God help us Help us to live lives of obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.